I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What got you it's really surprising how many create complexity and leave things in sort of a pretty complicated state. A lot of your power, a lot of what makes people, distinguishes people who are really successful is their, is their ability to cut through the clutter and keep it simple. Safi Bakal is one of the few second-time guests on What Got You There, which should tell you how much Sean respects him. Safi was first featured on episode number 126, so if you have not heard that, go ahead and pause this and check out that episode. Safi was a former physicist turned biotech CEO, where he went on to lead his company to IPO and serve as the CEO for 13 years. Safi is also the author of the best-selling book, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries, which is on Bill Gates's must-read list. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months, and that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. Safi, welcome back to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean. Delighted to be back on your show. Yeah, you you one of those people that just sparked new ideas in me, so I was so excited when you scheduled this round two. So it's been about a year since we last had you on. And if you were going to sum up this past year with one word, what would that be for you? Amazing. Unexpected. So many surprises, so many um, interesting new relationships, interesting new problems to think about, interesting companies and groups and organizations that I've engaged with, not only in the private sector, but in the on the national security side, in the U.S. military, and intelligence agencies, and congressional committees, uh, it's just totally unexpected. Uh, I think when we talked last year, I I was not long after I'd sort of come out of the cave. And when you're writing a book, is you know you're just sort of in a cave, or at least for me, you just going into this zone of disappearing and disconnecting and trying to go 
deep in some new universe that you're creating and you have no idea you find things are funny and you start laughing out loud and then you realize oh whoops i just laughed out loud and your wife is over there in the kitchen like what is this guy doing and your daughter's just like i think he's crazy anyways you know you're in this sort of cave and then you're like well i have no idea if anybody else will find this funny seems funny to me and interesting and surprising and bizarre connections between all these different things from you know 17th century astronomy to steve jobs to isaac newton to to um, you know edwin land and polaroid to u-boats in world war ii and how they're all connected by this one idea seems interesting to me but you know who knows might be just my mother and uh who ends up reading this stuff and then um yeah it was just totally unexpected how many um CEOs reached out and uh, large companies, small companies, hyper growth companies, uh, and saying that the ideas resonated with them. Industries that I, you know, had not spent a lot of uh, time on before, companies that I didn't even really know very much about. There was this guy who called me from a company I'd never heard of, and I looked at their website and it said, We make cameras. And, you know, I was getting 20 or 30 or more calls a week to go talk to companies or CEOs or groups. And so I sort of blew it off for quite a while. And uh, then I, his name was Evan and, and I kept getting these calls from people around him. I'm like, all right, I finally took the call. And it was a company called Snap because I didn't really know what that was. It turns out they make Snapchat. And, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a customer, not a user of Snapchat, but I, I ended up spending time with them and having, uh, you know, learning about all these new fields and new industries that were new to me, uh, new industries, you know, from media and journalism to, you know, the, the U S Navy and the U S air force to, um, film studios, to tech companies, to Amazon, to Google, uh, to, you know, Snapchat, to all sorts of stuff, many of whom are struggling with the exact same issues. So for me, it's been kind of an amazing year of connecting and meeting and getting to know all sorts of interesting people and new organizations and new industries and what they're thinking about, what they're struggling with, what they, they all have in common and how I can help them. When you go into a company, we'll call it XYZ, not knowing much about them at all, what are you first doing? How are you learning more so that you can help them? Well, it's, it starts with being curious. I think we talked about that um, a little bit the last time when I was uh, on your show. But for me, if there's one word, one superpower that uh, that has made a huge difference in my life, you know, one word or idea or concept that can improve your professional relationships, improve your personal relationships, improve your ability as a leader, improve your ability to innovate, improve your ability to help others, improve your even life choices, it's curiosity. And curiosity is not something you're, you know, that's genetic that you're born with. You either have it or you don't have it. It's something you cultivate. You keep at the forefront of your mind this question, keep asking why. Keep asking why. Why do you say this? Why do you think that? Why do you believe? What are the underlying assumptions that make you say that? So for example, let's say a CEO calls me up or a colleague or a friend and they're struggling with X. Well, what is it exact? What is it that's the real challenge for you there? What is it? What have you tried before? What worked about it? When has it? When have you done something that actually helped with that? 
Why do you think it worked there? What do you think is stopping it that's not working there? By asking a lot of questions, you really tease out, begin to tease out what's different, what's interesting, what's surprising, what might work, what might not work. There's some common themes, you know, some of the themes that we, I wrote about and we talked about that have resonated with a lot of leaders and they call me up and they would like me to talk more about those themes with uh, their teams and their leadership teams and their companies um, or just privately one-on-one, which I enjoy a lot. But it's not as effective unless you really keep asking why. Like really, you know, what made you want to reach out and call me up? What is it that you're seeing inside your group or organization or your company that you want to get better at that made you want to reach out right now? And so part of the secret or the power of really helping people and really helping yourself is to keep asking why. It's not only when you're helping others, but you can help yourself by forcing yourself to be incredibly honest by keep by persisting and asking why to yourself. What am I really upset about here? This person said something to me that really pissed me off, you know, whether it's a person on my executive team or a person on my board of directors or one of my investors or one of my customers. Why am I particularly angry here? Is there something about this that is raising an issue in me that I am not comfortable with, that I haven't resolved? Something that's bothering me about what I don't like about what we're doing or what I don't like about myself. And you just keep asking why and you start teasing out these surprising answers. I mean, I I can give you a simple example from personal life. Would that be helpful? Yeah, that would be great. All right. So this is sort of uh, less about business strategy or business innovation, but more just as an example of uh, why it's useful to keep asking why not only for your for, for for those you interact with, but even for yourself. So when I was uh, uh, a teenager, and this is a, a habit that I got into over the last 30 or 40 years that has actually been incredibly helpful in keeping me calm and collected rather than getting really angry uh, when, when difficult things happen or when um, people do things that are, are, are you know, not, not consistent with how we would like to see the world around us. So when I was a teenager, I played a lot in the uh, in the juniors in tennis, competitive tennis. And I had a family friend who was, um, she was a, a big star uh, in the girls and uh, the women's. Well, actually, you know, we were 14 or so. And so it was young, uh, you know, young players. And I saw her, you know, a couple of years later, we had, we lost touch and we reconnected and she was lying on a couch. She had, uh, you know, feeding herself sort of some chocolate and snacks and, and muffins and stuff. And, you know, lost, I think a lot of her athletic ability and she was sort of had gained a bunch of weight. And she was telling me she had spent the summer with her cousins and how pissed she was, how lazy her cousins were because they were, I forget, you know, what small town they lived in, but anytime they wanted to go get the mail, the mailbox was like, you know, a hundred yards walk or something from their front door, they would get in the car 
and drive to the mailbox and pick their mail and drive back home, whatever the distance was, wasn't that long. And how that really, really pissed her off. And I was saying, that's so interesting because if I had cousins that did that, I would find it curious, but it wouldn't piss me off. So why does it really piss her off? I didn't raise it directly with her, but I just started thinking about that. And I started realizing, well, it's a mirror because she sees something in them that she doesn't really like. She was a competitive athlete and she'd grown, to be honest, kind of lazy and had gained a lot of weight and had really given up on a lot of stuff. And she was seeing that in someone around her and it reminded her in a way that she hadn't connected with of something in her that she didn't like, that she was struggling with. And because of that, she got really angry at them. And I've seen that over and over. It's like people who are struggling to quit something, let's say smoking, and then you see somebody else lighting up and you get really pissed at them. Well, if I saw somebody lighting up, I would think, well, you know, that's really unhealthy and it's too bad, but I wouldn't get pissed at them. Yet people who have struggled with addiction or giving up smoking will get really pissed at someone who has failed to persist in their, you know, giving up smoking. And so over the years, whenever I find myself, it's a little habit, whenever I find myself getting angry, I say, well, what is it about me that I'm seeing reflected here that I don't like? Because if I'm seeing a certain behavior and, you know, I may not, it may not be a favorite behavior. I may not like it. I may, I may choose to do something else. But normally, if it's like giving up smoking, it doesn't bother me. I don't get angry. Generally speaking, if I see something that makes me really angry, I just immediately say, well, what is it about me that I don't like that I'm seeing here? And that makes me pause and my anger goes away. I say, oh, this is what I don't like. And I, I've, had, I've had that happen to me many times now. And each time I've learned something from that about myself. And each time that's helped me improve something about myself. And then the next time or third time or fourth time I see it, I don't get as angry. You mentioned that's been a, a 30 or 40 year progression for you. If you were to rewind a while ago, because that takes an extreme amount of patience and pause in order to do that. What were those conversations in your head like early on? Did you initially start to get angry at these things? I mean, I'll give you a simple example also from a long time ago. Is um, I think it was a graduate student and there was uh, another guy, uh, another a fellow graduate student who had kind of a way of not sucking up to the older professors. We were you know, both pretty young but a way of sort of speaking very differently to more senior people and more senior professors than speaking to his friends and his peers. And that just really pissed me off. You know, what a brown noser, what a this, you know, what a suck up. And then I paused and said, well, why does that make me angry? I'm like, oh, am I concerned that I'm that way? Because I was, a, a lot of professors sort of had taken me under their wings and really seemed to enjoy talking to me and confiding to me, even though I was you know, half their age. And I was where, am I in some way different to very senior people and than I am to people who are like me or, or my age? Am I a brown noser? Am I a suck up? And as soon as I realized that it was about me and not about him, 
that I was worried that I was doing that. And maybe I was, and maybe I wasn't, but maybe, or maybe I had some slight tendency for that. But as soon as I did that, the anger dissipated. I was no longer angry at him. And I learned something about, listen, this is something that's kind of important to me. And I really don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be speaking differently or in different ways to people who are much more senior to me and people who are sort of my level or less senior than me. I want to be speaking the same to everybody. And I learned that. And so over the years, firstly, I don't get angry uh, and I don't make it about that person that I'm seeing that behavior, but I also improve my own behavior. I speak to people who are, you know, a generation older than me or, you know, much more famous or much more wealthy. I remember when I was an entrepreneur uh, and raising money for my company, like the first time I was out there with my, you know, passing the hat around to raise money for a seed round for the company that I started. Uh, there was this one very successful investor who had written a really pretty big check uh, to get us started. And he had a colleague who was, you know, 10x, very famous, very well known, uh, very wealthy, and also very private investor. Uh, but a very powerful personality. And he said, you know, I think your company is doing uh, pretty well. You, you, you know, you've, you've gotten some good traction. I think I'd like to introduce you to this other, you know, very well-known person. And I remember it was so interesting when he introduced us, he was pretty nervous. You know, he was a generation older than me and a super successful guy himself, but he was kind of nervous talking to this ultra famous person but I wasn't. I had just learned over the years. I just treat everybody equally, uh, talk about the facts and the ideas and where things could go and why I'm excited about it. And kind of doesn't matter who they are. I talked to the same someone who's 70 year old billionaire and someone who's a 25 year old friend or colleague, kind of exactly the same. Didn't phase me one way or the other. And I think that has served me well. It's been a very useful skill to learn to speak in the same way with the same ideas and the same points that you're excited about, regardless of the level or the status of the person you're talking to, you treat them all with respect, assume that they're intelligent, assume that they're thoughtful, assume that try to communicate your ideas and your excitement in ways that they can get and they can understand and all the other stuff about who they are, or how famous they are, who cares? Um, so that has served me well. And it came from this concept of keep asking why. If you find yourself angry, why? If you're angry at your spouse, why is it that you're really angry at your spouse? Is there something there about yourself that you're not comfortable with? If you're angry at your friend, at your colleague, at your boss, at someone who works for you, keep asking why. And then you may learn something surprising. Safi, this is already so helpful, so useful. I'm sure you have a, a treasure trove of some of these personal growth, I'll just call them techniques, but I'm wondering, are there other actions you see the majority of people taking that create bad behavior? And if so, any other clear examples like you just articulated to help us understand those? Well, I, you know, obviously following your curiosity has been uh, something I think of as a incredibly useful guiding principle that can improve as we just talked about not only your ability to 
understand what you're doing and why, and then tease out some of those internal dynamics, which let allow you to kind of get better. Um, but also improving your personal relationships. So, you know, as an example, I've started a, a new habit or routine recommended by a, a, a friend, a colleague of mine, which is uh, ask myself a little spreadsheet where I have uh, 10 questions. Um, have I done my best on X, Y, or Z um, every morning? And then you just sort of grade yourself on a one to 10. And it keeps keeps certain important questions to ask yourself in your mind. Have I done my best on setting clear goals? Have I done my best in towards achieving those goals? But for me, I use have my have I done my best to listen with curiosity to my, for example, spouse or to my kids or to my colleagues. So the curiosity in terms of kind of behaviors and relationships, whether it's personal or professional, curiosity can help those relationships a lot too, because once you there's once you start listening with curiosity, there's so many benefits to that that are surprising. Firstly, people understand that you really care about them. If you're listening to them just to wait until their lips stop moving and you can argue your point or persuade them to come in your direction, which is a fairly common thing that I have <laughs> stumbled into over the years as well. But if you're listening with curiosity after they tell you something, you don't just repeat it back, but you probe. Like, really, what what made you say that? What's behind that? If they say, I can't do something, you know, you say, you know, have there been times in the past that you actually were able to do that? What made those times different? As soon as you start listening with curiosity, you know, number one, people appreciate that you care about them, which is fantastic. Number two, they may learn something totally surprising and unexpected. They're expecting to just they're going to argue your side, their side, and you're going to argue your side. And each one's just going to raise their voice and repeat the same stuff, which is not a very productive conversation. But if you start listening with curiosity, you can tease out new angles. You didn't know that what they really cared about. You thought that what they really cared about was X, but actually underneath it, what they really cared about was Y. And even though it's tough for you to satisfy X, it's not that hard for you to satisfy Y. So in terms of, you know, you asked about what characteristics or behaviors or, or habits can help. Um, that curiosity helps you not only with your internal stuff and understanding what are your habits that you want to change or what are things that you're uncomfortable with yourself that you're not really thinking through, but it helps you in your personal and professional relationships. It's not only, not only at work, you know, by keep asking, by persisting and asking why you really tease out what's going on underneath, but also in your personal life. People feel cared. People feel like you want to uh, help them. You're really engaged. And that creates loyalty. It creates trust. It creates validation. So the curiosity kind of helps in many of these uh, dimensions. That's kind of one factor. Um, I think you asked about other factors. Is that right, Sean? Yeah. I, I just want to highlight the importance of the depth element there. And teasing out those different angles, it's, I'm just thinking about personal relationships. And when you approach them with the, with the methodology and the framework you just laid out, you really do discover so many new things. And I just loved that. So I, I just wanted to highlight that because it, it's something that really resonates. Yeah. And, you know, look, look, 
this is a shelter in place time. So we're all having a lot more intense relationships with a smaller number of people. And it's easily for that. It's easy for that to escalate into tension, but, you know, learning to listen with curiosity is helps diffuse tensions because instead of you're arguing your side, you're putting on a detective hat and saying, Hmm, that's interesting. Help me understand better X. Help me understand better Y. Help me understand better Z. And that becomes a much less tense discussion than I want X, you want Y, I want X, you want Y, I want X, you want Y, just over and over. It becomes a learning discussion, a curiosity discussion, an exploring discussion. So it, it definitely helps on the personal side. It definitely helps on the professional side. It it helps in your ability to innovate because, you know, so many people try something new and then get some negative feedback and give up and then move on to the next thing. In fact, that's very popular in Silicon Valley with this whole um, sort of fail fast and and pivot mantra. Well, if you look at you know the invention of the transistor or the invention of digital cameras or the invention of integrated chips or the invention of probably almost every important breakthrough. Well, let's take even search, right? There was 20 search companies before Google uh, became successful. And, you know, pretty much every investor by the time Google came around said, ah, eh, you know, there's 20 of these things that never works. What really makes a difference is learning to listen with curiosity. But in that particular case, if you're trying to innovate, it's something I called LSC, listen to the suck with curiosity. Well, what is it that everybody is rejecting search for? Same thing with social networks. Why is it everybody, when Mark Zuckerberg first came around with his idea in 2004, I want to build a social network that connects people in this and that way. Well, it was the maybe 15th or 20th or 25th social network. There'd been Friendster and MySpace and dozens of others, none of which had gone anywhere. Well, there was one investor who said, you know, and, and almost every investor passed except for one who followed that listen to the suck with curiosity. So people said, well, there's this company called Friendster right now. And it built up into a community. It went from a few thousand people to a few hundred thousand. It's getting close to, you know, a million. And then it started to tank and everybody was leaving it. And so most investors said, yeah, yeah, I see. That's what happens with every social network. They build up and then everybody goes on to the next one. It's just like a clothing fad. Well, this investor, whose name was Peter Thiel, said, is that really the case? Let me do LSE here. Let me listen to that suck with curiosity. So he happened to have friends at Friendster behind the scenes and he went and he got the data, uh, asked him for the data of user retention because he knew that they were having some trouble with their website. You know, the website was crashing. So he went and got the data and user retention. He analyzed the data and he said, whoa, people are, are, are staying on this site for hours. They log on and they stay for hours. And that's despite the fact that they have kind of a flaky website that keeps crashing. I don't think it's a bad business model. If people are staying on a website for hours, even though that website is crashing all the time, they might have a real business model here. And the reason people are leaving is because they have a bad website and there's someone with a better website. So he wrote a check to this guy, Mark Zuckerberg, and he said, I don't think this social, I think everybody else is wrong on this social network stuff. I think if you just get the website right, you know, what they had not done is 
learn how to scale up to create a backend robust database when you go from a few thousand to a few million people. So if you get that backend database right, you could have a real winner here. So he wrote a check for $500,000 and he sold it eight years later for a billion dollars. Now that's the power of listening to the suck with curiosity. When you see something that other people are rejecting and they say it could never work, keep asking why. Is, are they really right or are they missing something here? Is there something behind that suck that's fascinating, that's interesting, that's different? And that's what curiosity can unleash. So bottom line, curiosity is, you know, number one, good for your own growth. <laughs> if you're getting angry, angry, why? What's there that you're struggling with and not comfortable? Two, on your personal or professional relationships, it diffuses tensions, it engages people, it creates trust, it creates bonds, it creates loyalty. They understand that you really care about them and care about their growth and it allows you to find ways of working together that neither of you might have expected. And number three, if you're trying to innovate or create something new, listening to that suck with curiosity, well, there's an example of how it made one guy a billion dollars. I know you've been in the cave working on your most recent project, so I'm not sure how much you've been exposed, but are there things recently that have just been peaking your antennas a little bit when you've been listening to the suck with curiosity? Anything you think most people are wrong on right now? Anything most people are wrong on right now? Well, you know, one of the things that, um, I find is interesting. And you, you sort of asked me about what are some frameworks that are helpful um, for thinking about the world around us. And one of the things that I've noticed is that, uh, that has been very helpful for me is just the principle, in addition to following your curiosity, is just the principle of keeping it simple. So you know, I have spent quite a while with some, you know, CEOs and management teams and executive teams. And um, it's really surprising how many create complexity and leave things in sort of a pretty complicated state. Like, let's say you're running a media organization and you're thinking about you know, what should your next strategic move be in the sort of outline? Here's the sort of 17 forces at work and here's my competitors. And, you know, this is why we want to do this strategy. If you um, can't explain what you're trying to do and why you're going to go there and why it makes sense, in a way that your mother can understand it, you have a problem. You need to, the people who are most successful are the ones who can take a really complex situation and boil it down and make it simple, not simplistic. And the key to that is finding the right balance. You wanna keep it simple, but not simplistic. You wanna say, here's the three reasons we need to go in here, our competitors, are doing X, the customers want Y, we have advantage Z. That means if we move now in the next three months, we can burn our competitors and do a great job for our customers, bottom line. And that turns out to be, sounds simple, but be much more complicated, much trickier than people understand. And it actually, that's where curiosity can help you. 
if you feel like you have an explanation that makes sense, you want to ask yourself, is there a simpler way to understand this? Is there a simpler way to get to the essence of this? Is there something that I'm missing here? And that's a, a lesson that I got from um, working in science from actually one of my um, uh, advisors when I was a graduate student. His name was Lonnie Suskind, who worked a lot with Richard Feynman, uh, who my father had worked with as well. And it was a lesson that came from Richard Feynman, who was a famous 20th century uh, physicist uh, who you know won the Nobel Prize and made you know many important discoveries. But one of the things that people didn't know as much about him and how he worked, and I learned from Lenny, was he would figure, and I've seen in myself now uh, so many times, he would figure something out, maybe solve a difficult problem or come up with an idea. And the first, and then rather than just go present it or write it up as a paper or go tell people about it, he would do it over and then he would do it over and then he would do it a fourth time and then he would do it a fifth time. And what happens is you have a explanation that might take, you know, 12 pages to, you know, go from start to finish. And then the second time you do it, it's like, well, actually it's really not that complicated. It takes me, you know, I can do the whole thing in five pages. And then the third time it's like, actually it's much simpler than that. I can do the whole thing in two pages. And then finally, he would get to the point where like, actually, I can do the whole thing in a paragraph. But it's only if you keep forcing yourself to ask why, what is the real truth here? Is there a different way to see the same thing? So we're being a little abstract in terms of talking about, you know, let's say a scientific idea, but it applies very much the same way in business. When you ask somebody or you're talking about what's the right strategy if there's a very complicated answer or it takes a long time to formulate, you say that might be the right answer, but let's see if there's a more, a different way to think about it. And in the process of trying to boil it down to here's how I would explain it, I probably shouldn't use the example of how should you explain it to your mother? Because you know my mother is a, prof a tenured professor of astrophysics <laughs> at Princeton University. So there's a lot of things that I could explain to my mother that wouldn't work for your average person. But another way to say it is to an intelligent 12-year-old. You have to be able to explain your idea to an intelligent 12-year-old in a way that they get your idea and they get why you think it's important and why you think it's the right idea. And if you can't do that, if you're relying on all sorts of like fancy frameworks or, or theories or whatever then you probably don't really understand it. So that's kind of one of the lessons uh, that I got both from doing science and from running a business is a lot of your power, a lot of what makes people, distinguishes people who are really successful is their, is their ability to cut through the clutter and keep it simple. Now that doesn't mean you have to be very careful here. That doesn't mean just ignore a lot of stuff and say, do this. Or be really quick and sloppy about your idea. Yeah, we should go here because it's a big market. What you want to do, being simple, keeping it simple is really hard work. 
it's like that whole, you know, the whole line, uh, the old line about writing from Hemingway, the dignity of an iceberg comes from the 90% of it. I actually forget the exact quote, but it's something like the, the power and dignity of an iceberg comes from the fact that 90% of it is submerged underwater. Right. And it's the same thing with like seeing a duck going on a lake looks very calm and you don't see all of the mm-hmm. legs turning super fast underneath it. You see it floating along. Keeping it simple is just like that. You want to be able to speak to your people or communicate uh, with those that you work with and saying, here's the bottom line. But behind those two or three things that you say in 10 seconds is a lot of work having thought through a lot of angles and then say, this is the most important thing to say in 10 seconds. And people appreciate that. So a lot of your power as a leader comes not, the first thing we talked about is tapping into curiosity on relationships on strategy on your own stuff that you're struggling with. The second part, a second part is in your ability to keep it simple, to provide clarity for the people around you. And that's not easy. People don't invest enough in that. People say, oh, okay, uh, here's something short and uh, that should be good enough. Well, if it's short, but you haven't done a lot of work in boiling down the really deep thinking to making it short, then people know that it's just very superficial thinking. On the other hand, if you haven't, if you're just giving them a lot of facts and a lot of data, then they're overwhelmed and they don't get the clarity. So you have to do both. You have to do the hard work. That's the dignity of the iceberg, all the stuff that's underneath the water that they're not going to see. You have to do all that hard work. And then after that, boil it down into something simple. So then they just get the tip of the iceberg. And that's like the writing in, in Hemingway. You know, you just get a, f- a few chosen words, mostly nouns, no adjectives and you're kind of blown away with the imagery that he creates. But what you don't see is the fact that he wrote 10X of that and took out 9X. So he left just 10% of what you actually see. And that's, I actually took that when I was doing on a separate field. That's how I would uh, write. Not like uh, Hemingway style actually didn't resonate for me, but the, principle of writing 10x and then cutting out 9x is kind of how I write and how I wrote the last book and how I'm thinking about the next books as well. So that was, you know, to, to summarize, to keep it simple, number one, the power of curiosity, use that in relationships and in yourself uh, and thinking through strategy, listening to the suck with curiosity. That's number one. And number two, invest in simplicity in providing clarity and simplicity for the people around you. Yes, Safi, I've mentioned this to you before, but it's one of the things I I appreciate most about our conversations is your ability to take 90% of that iceberg and just distill that down. I I was laughing a minute ago when you were mentioning Richard Feynman. I I went down one of those rabbit holes this weekend uh, watching some of his explainer videos, and one of the great ones is him explaining how fire works, and and you nailed it. Any intelligent 12-year-old can perfectly understand how fireworks after watching that video. Uh, so I, I just love hearing about that. You, you even hit on just 
the different fields you've been able to pull from because whether direct access in, in terms of working in those fields or even just learning, just that whole multidisciplinary approach to learning. So I'm wondering on, on a daily, on a weekly basis, what is that additional 10x work you're doing that you distill down? Where, where are you pulling from? Reading. So there's a, um, uh, a phrase that I keep in mind which is, let's call it a third secret superpower, which anybody can work on. And that has helped me enormously in coming up with some really, you know, creative stuff that in hindsight, it doesn't seem very difficult, but I think it's sort of surprising to people like when you mix physics, business and history in a way that actually brings things together. And the phrase I keep in mind is the power of border dwellers, the power of border dwellers. And by that, I mean placing yourself at the border of different fields or different disciplines or different industries. So uh, just as an example, there are uh, a lot of business books. You know, many of them are written by, you know, let's say someone who's been in one industry for a long time and they're right about their industry, you know, and that, that can be good depending on the kind of book. There are a lot of science books, uh, you know, and those can be, uh, you know, good if they're, you know, engaging, fun, lively surveys or like Feynman's uh, books where he really thinks of things in fresh, simple ways because he keeps trying to find more interesting and more fresh ways of understanding the same question. There are science sort of survey books uh, and there are sort of history books, but rarely are there books that bridge science, you know, describe a new science idea with business, you know, let's say a, 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 a CEO's experience running a public company with history. Let's go back into, you know, 17th century astronomy. And so, uh, the book that we spoke about that I wrote uh, and came out last year, Loon Shots, you know, mixes being a CEO of a public company and uh, or a private company or trying to manage a business or be a leader and trying to balance the artists and the soldiers and the creativity and the innovation on the one side and the operations and the execution on the other side and some fresh ideas about that with an idea from science. We'll take a glass of water. And you stick your finger in it and you swirl it around and molecules just slosh around your finger. But as you lower the temperature, all of a sudden that behavior completely changes. You know, you can't stick your finger in anymore. The molecules go from sloshing around to lining up rigidly. Why? You know, there's no CEO molecule telling them to all change their behavior at 32 Fahrenheit when the water freezes. They just do it. And so that's called a phase transition in science. So can one of these things help the other? Can understanding what happens when you stick your finger inside a glass of water help you think about how to manage a business as it's growing? In other words, most one of the, probably the reason a lot of people have called me up over the last year, whether it's in the U.S. military or you know Snapchat or any of the you know Spotify or or film studios or media companies, small companies that have started to experience hypergrowth have grown really big in the case of the US military of course it's a very established 2 million person organizations 
they start to feel that same phase transitions. The molecules, instead of sloshing around, the people, instead of being wildly innovative and, and coming up with creative new ideas, start to get very rigid and reject those ideas, even though it's the same people. And it has nothing to do with the CEO telling them, hey, innovate, or hey, focus on execution. There's something about the inherent dynamics that's going on. So power of border dwellers. Living on the border or learning about what happens in that glass of water can give you fresh ideas about how to manage your business. So the power of border dwellers is once you place yourself on a border, once you start reading outside your comfort zone, once you read ideas in science, or now let's go into history. You know, when you really understand, I wrote about the rise and fall of Pan Am. Now you'd think, let's say I'm running a tech company, or let's say I'm running a, a manufacturing business or a consumer business. What do I need to know about Pan Am? You know, that happened 50 years ago, but they were the number two most recognized brand in the world after Coca-Cola. They were the most successful airline uh, company in the history of that industry. Widely loved, widely admired. Why did they disappear? And how does that tie to what happened to Polaroid, which was the apple of its day, the most successful consumer company? And how does that tie to what happened, what Steve Jobs did his first time at Apple, which was, which was headed towards disaster and bankruptcy? And what did he learn from those two examples where you see that pattern in those two previous examples? What did he learn when he came back to Apple the second time around? How had he changed? And why did that make Apple succeed? So going into history and seeing those patterns can give you fresh ideas if you're running a business. And so... Coming back to this third thing, the power of dwelling on borders. So for me, where that resonated is, well, I'd, I'd been in that business world with sort of blinders on, running a business, taking care of all the sort of people issues and fires you have to put out and board member calls and investor calls and customer calls and, and you know, uh, somebody's going off for pregnancy leave and how do you feel that thing? And someone's, you know, having this disaster and this thing's blowing. All the usual fire drills that happen when you're running a company day to day to thinking about sticking your finger in a glass of water, to thinking about what happened with Pan Am or, or Polaroid or Steve Jobs or even 17th century astronomy. What happened with Kepler and Galileo and Newton? Why did Kepler succeed and why did the others around him fail? And is there a common thread there that can help you with your current life or problems? So the, what has helped me enormously and what I've seen a number of leaders who are very successful do is positioning yourself on the border between industries, between fields, between disciplines. So for example, we just mentioned Steve Jobs, you know, the first time he was at Apple, it was kind of a disaster, right? He had, was a young guy. He had created the working with Steve Wozniak, the Apple II a computer, one of the earliest personal computers, and that was a big hit for about 12 months or 24 months until uh, Commodore came around with their pet and Radio Shack came around with the TRS-80. And within a year or two, IBM came with their first PC and that was it. That was the end of Apple. They'd lost pretty much all of their advantage and they were their market share was going down the toilet. And Steve Jobs had said, well, you know, I'm this awesome artist and we're all about innovation. So let's Here's this project that this guy has been working on in the corner named uh, Jeff uh, Raskin. It's called the Macintosh Project, where we have this like uh, web in user interface, a graphical interface. 
So job after trying to work on the franchise projects that the next version of the Apple II, that the Apple III and the Lisa, it didn't do very well on fleshing out this franchise project. So he took over the Macintosh project, got rid of Jeff Raskin and said, all right, here's our Macintosh project. This is the awesome thing. All you people who are working on the franchise projects, the Apple III and so on are bozos. Well, the app, the Macintosh, when it launched, was a flop as a product. It was a great publicity campaign with the you know a famous 1984 ad and one of the legendary ads of all times. But as a product, it was too hot. It was too expensive. It overheated, and sales after a few weeks went crashing down, close to zero, and the company was headed for bankruptcy. And Steve Jobs was asked to leave. What had he done? He had really created this tension and exacerbated the tension between the artists working on something new and the soldiers who were delivering on the franchise at an unnecessary level, calling all the soldiers bozos and creating so much hostility between those two groups that the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. So people on both sides started leaving and the company was headed for bankruptcy. What had he learned 12 years later? Well, in those intervening 12 years, he had bought, in part actually by accident, to get back at Apple after he had left Apple. He said, oh, there's this company, George Lucas has been doing this uh, film stuff and he's for Star Wars and he's built up this uh, technical group that does some of the computer graphics for him and they built this really great computer uh, called the Pixar Image Computer, the PIC. And um, let me buy this little company because uh, actually... George Lucas was getting divorced at the time and needed the cash. So let me buy this little company and uh, see if we can build a computer and I can take on Apple sort of independently. And so he, he worked on this computer. He bought this small company called Pixar to get a new access to a new computer that he could do this sort of computer battle with his former company with Apple. Turns out the computer part of that didn't work out. The Pixar image computer was rapidly replaced with workstations and Unix. But they started doing this little thing on the side called movies, 3D animation. And then they came out with a movie called Toy Story. And he had originally actually tried to kill that, that sort of movie business on the side. But that movie, Toy Story, became this huge hit. Steve Jobs took the company public. That was a brilliant financial move and became a billionaire and made all of his money on Toy Story, actually not from Apple the first time around, but from Toy Story um, and going public. So when he got back to Apple the second time around, he was a different person. Instead of saying, oh, all you people who are working on something new and innovative are great and everyone else is a bozo, he had understood from being the previous few years in the film world that you can't do that. He had learned from the film world how people who are making movies are forced to balance the creative art, wildly creative artists who are you know, filmmakers and actors with the operators and producers that are focusing on on time, on budget, on spec, delivering something consistently to customers. And in the film industry, you have no choice. You have everything's a loon shot. Everything's a crazy idea that nobody will think will work just like Toy Story. Nobody thought you could make a 3D graphics movie. That was the first one. Everybody thought that was a crazy idea. But to do that takes artists and soldiers, the creatives and the operators working together hand in hand. And he didn't learn that in the tech industry. 
He learned that from the film industry, from those 12 years where he watched a guy named Ed Catmull build up Pixar into what it eventually became, probably the most successful film studio uh, in history, probably maybe second to Disney or comparable to the early days of Disney. That's the power of border dwellers. When Steve Jobs got back to Apple the second time around, he had learned from the film industry, something that his other colleagues in tech had never had the advantage of. They had stayed in tech their whole lives and they never got to see how another industry works. So that's kind of the third thing you asked about frameworks. We talked about number one, the power of curiosity on so many dimensions. Number two, the power of keeping it simple like Richard Feynman who finds fresh ways to think about older subjects and communicate that so an intelligent 12 year old can understand it. But number three is the power of dwelling in borders. So in the, you know, Jobs example is what he learned from the film industry he went and brought back to Apple the second time around. And he brought in, uh, the first thing he did was promote a wild, a beautiful, wildly inventive, creative artist named Johnny Ives, who was this designer who designed all the Apple products if you have them iPhones and iPods and the original iPods. And he was the original designer on many of those. But the second thing he did was import a guy from Compact Computer named Tim Cook, whose title, whose nickname, when he was in charge of operations and inventory at Compact Computer, his nickname was the Attila, the Han of inventory. He was sort of the ultimate soldier. And Steve Jobs led not by saying, oh, this is the great project. I'm a Moses on the mountain and I'm raising my staff and I'm anointing the chosen project. He led by managing the touch and the balance between those two, between the Johnny Ive artists and between the Tim Cook soldiers, understanding that those two groups generally don't like each other and generally don't understand each other. You know, the group that's making the money rarely likes the group that's spending the money and vice versa. So Jobs led not like this mythical Moses dreaming up great products, but he led by balance, by being a gardener, managing the touch and the balance between these groups coming up with the new ideas, wild new ideas, and the groups that are de-risking them and turning them into products and managing the touch and the balance between those two. And where did he get that model? That model came from the film industry. That's my view. And actually, I've spent a lot of time with people who have <laughs> who knew him uh, during those intervening years. And I think that was um, a consistent view as well. But when people ask me over the last year about you know all these wacky ideas and loon shots that, you know, how you apply this idea of what happens when you stick your finger in a glass of water to thinking of, you know, getting fresh new ideas about how to manage a business. You know, the, in other words, the idea of a phase transition and applying that to a company. And then how do you tie that all into, you know, the rise and fall of Pan Am or the hunt for U-boats in World War II and Nazi Germany and the fight, the battle of the Atlantic between the allies and the Germans or uh, you know, the birth of modern science and the rise of the British Empire and the fall of the Qing Dynasty and how do you connect these things? Well, that's the power of being a border dweller and anybody can do it. Again, I'm not a believer that there's stuff in your genes that tells you you can do X or Y, with some exceptions, I'm never gonna be a great basketball player. But you do it by reading and you do it by stretching outside your comfort zone. You do it by 
if you normally, let's say you're in industry X and most of your reading is consumed with trade journals about X, which is pretty common. I mean, actually I did that when I was running a company. I mostly read stuff in my industry. You get the power of dwelling in borders by reading things outside your industry, reading provocative ideas, provocative, it may be from science, it may be from history, things that your competitors are not reading. That's how you get a competitive advantage. You read about things that your competitors are not reading, which gives you ideas they may not have. I love the insights and the power of these border dwellers. I want to hit on that a little bit further. I would just love to get your insight, though. You mentioned Pan Ams and, and Kodak. Were they unaware of what was going to happen? Meaning today's companies, they, they seem to have a much better grasp on this and what they need to do to continue to innovate. Do you think the companies today will be able to last and continue to evolve further into the future? Or is this some inevitable evolution and that they're going to have and meet their destruction at some point? What's your take on that? Well, the, what happened to Pan Am and what happened to Polaroid, they had these brilliant leaders. One trip in the case of Pan Am, who was an entrepreneur that started as a kid with a, who loved planes and he got you know, his hands on a tiny little plane and he began a little jet service from uh, New York to the Hamptons. You know, we could put one or two people at a time and started carrying people back and forth. And he grew that into this Pan Am International airline, the most successful airline ever. And Polaroid was something very similar, was a guy named Edwin Land, who was an equivalent, unbelievable entrepreneur who just had an idea when he was a young guy of literally 19 years old about how to create a filter that would separate the two kinds of light, the two kinds of polarization of light, which was a hundred year old problem that no one had solved. And he solved it as a 19-year-old kid. It was kind of create a cheap, inexpensive filter, the Polaroid filter. And that launched this whole company that became kind of the apple of its day. And he came up with that as a young kid as well and then continued to innovate. So these are examples of phenomenally innovative leaders. The problem was not that they lost their hunger. The problem was not that they, they grew fatter or, or complacent. The problem wasn't that they said, well, it's enough innovation now. They stayed hungry their entire life. They loved innovation. The problem was what I call the Moses trap. The problem is when you have a very strong leader at top. And this is exactly what happened to Steve Jobs the first time around and why Steve Jobs coming back to Apple the second time around was escaping the Moses trap. An example of how you use the power of being a border dweller to escape the Moses trap. But the Moses trap is this, you have this incredible, and, and you asked about will it keep happening or companies escape this? And I think it will keep happening unless you, and until you understand this Moses trap, what happened with Juan Trip and Pan Am, what happened with Edmund Land, what keeps happening over and over. So the Moses trap is when you have a person on top who is a product person. They think about, when we think about innovations or new ways of doing something, people typically think about products. Oh, you created the iPod. That's a great new product. Or, oh, you created a graphical user interface like a Macintosh. That's a great new product. Or with Edwin Land, oh, you created instant film printing. Well, that's a great new product. Or with Juan Trip, oh, you brought jet engines 
to the masses, which is true. He was a guy who created jet travel. That's a great new product. The Moses trap is when you have somebody on top who's a powerful leader like Moses and they have a blind spot. They're product people. They think of innovation as product and they miss the other kind of innovation, which is in strategy, which is in different ways to reach your customers that don't involve or make subtle changes that don't involve any new change in product. For example, and here's how it played in Pan Am. One trip was this, as I said, this huge product guy, he loved engines. You know, he would cut up planes and work with plane designers and make bigger planes, faster planes. And every time, every cycle, he would just work on making bigger, faster planes with bigger, faster engines. Anytime there was a new engine, he put it into his plane. It's a lot like tech people who see, oh, our job is to make a bigger, faster computer or a more powerful, faster computer or a, a, you know, a chip that works, you know, 10% better or faster. When you have someone at the top who's focused, who thinks innovation is just product, 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 like Juan Tripp thought about Pan Am, which is bigger, faster planes, bigger, better engines. That's when you'll lose to a competitor who thinks about the other type of innovation. So I call the first one P-type and P-type product type, the other one S-type for strategy types. So what happened was there was another guy named Bob Crandall who was running another airline called American Airlines. And this other guy, Bob Crandall, didn't know anything about engines. He was not a plane guy. He was a CEO, but he'd never you know, taken apart engines like Juan Tripp had. He had worked at Hallmark greeting cards. He had worked at a, uh, you know, a banking company. He was a finance guy. But one thing he really did like is finding creative strategies, finding creative things that didn't make that, that would increase business, but had nothing to do with new products. So he started something called frequent flyers. That's just, that doesn't take any new product, no new technology, but all, that was a big hit. Turns out people love frequent flyer miles. He started something called hub, or he began using an American Airlines something called hub and spoke. Instead of trying to fly our planes everywhere, all over the map, let's create a local hub and then fly in and out of that hub. That turned out to be incredibly helpful. And then came up with this wild idea, which everybody said was crazy. It was a crazy idea. He said, you know what? We have this reservation system that all our internal agents use to do bookings. Why don't we take the internal reservation system that has the American Airlines logo on it and just give it away for free to everybody? Just like that. People said, are you crazy? You can't give your internal system that you built and cost you money for free to everybody, to every travel agent outside your company in the country, in the world, who does that? You know, if you have a product, you charge money. If you cost you this much to build a system, you charge me. He said, no, I think I'm going to give it away for free. And he did. That grew into the Sabre reservation system that every travel agent used. And guess what? American Airlines bookings went way, way up and everybody else's went way, way down. And when deregulation came, Pan Am was out. They had these big expensive airlines and they couldn't compete. But American Airlines had come up with these subtle changes in strategy that made a huge difference. Giving away their reservation system, frequent flyers. Um, They started to collect all this data from these reservation systems that they didn't expect and they could use that data. That was the beginning of 
what was called yield management or big data. Moral of the story, you would ask me, will I see this happening over and over? Yeah, because the Moses trap is very tempting. If you have a powerful leader who loves innovation and has a blind spot, thinks innovation equals product, that's what happened to Pan Am. Wantrip just kept wanting bigger and bigger engines. And when the seven, when he saw a new kind of engine, he went to Boeing and said, I want you to put this in a plane. And that became the Boeing 747 that cost billions and billions of dollars. So he was spending money and building bigger, better planes with bigger, newer engines. And his competitor was just doing these subtle changes in strategy that involved no new products. And Pan Am disappeared. And the only airline, there were 300 major airlines that went through deregulation. All of them went bankrupt except for one within the next 10 years. And that was American Airlines. <laughs> Subtle changes in strategy. So if leaders understand this point of the blind spot and avoid the Moses trap, they can avoid some of these problems. So for example, back to Steve Jobs, when he went back to Apple, he had been a pure product guy. He had been absolutely following the same path as Juan Tripp at Pan Am and Edwin Land at Polaroid. Just wanted awesome new cameras and awesome new products and got completely lost down the rabbit hole of better, faster product and missed subtle changes in the market, stuff like digital cameras. He understood the technology, but didn't understand that there was a new business model, a new strategy that made sense there. And so Polaroid disappeared. And Steve Jobs started the same way as both of those. It was all about building a bigger, faster computer. He started with the Apple II and then he went to a different kind of computer and then he bought the Pixar image computer because it was a bigger, faster computer. And then he started his next company called Next. And what was the point of Next? Build a bigger, faster computer. What happened to Next? It was a disaster. Nobody wanted it, just like the 747. And what happened to the Pixar image computer, which was, you know, the next computer was maybe $10,000 when everybody was paying $1,000 for a computer. The next computer was maybe $10,000. Well, the Pixar image computer was $100,000. They were just like the 747. See, that's how we talked about power of border dwellers. This is how you see history repeating and you see the patterns. Steve Jobs was headed down that path of the 747, headed down the path of Edwin Land and his like instant film printing of building some wild new product because they were all Moseses on top of the mountain and they all had that blind spot of innovation equals product. What happened? He started to see, he came back to Apple and yeah, he helped, he managed his artists and soldiers and got the Johnny Ives and the Tim Cooks and he balanced, you know, balanced that internal organization and internal design but he also looked at, started to understand strategy type innovations. Again, picking up from seeing things differently in the film industry, because when he'd been in the tech industry, the next didn't work, the Pixar image computer, he'd been completely down that bigger, faster, better, going down that bigger, faster, better path. And so when he got back, yeah, he helped create some new products. He brought simplicity instead of doing you know 50 different products, we're gonna do four. But the other thing he did is he came up with some strategy choices. He said, well, 
Apple has gone down the same path as IBM, IBM of opening up their operating system for a lot of, uh, sorry, as, uh, as the IBM clones of opening up their operating system for everybody to use. He said, we're going to create a closed model. That didn't involve any new products or any new technology. It just said, our system is going to be closed. I know you don't like it, but we're going to make it a beautiful closed system. And that's going to be different than our competitors where everybody's doing the same thing and there are thousands of clones. We're going to offer, we can offer our customers something different. That was a strategy choice, not a product choice. Same thing was putting songs online. There were a lot of songs online. There were, by that point, a lot of shops online. But everybody said, you can't put songs online and charge 99 cents for a song. Nobody does that. And besides, music piracy is everywhere. Nobody's going to pay for songs when they can just you know, search MP3s online and download wherever they want from Napster or whatever. And he said, I think there's some value here. There was no new product, no new technology. Shops were online. Songs were available. He just said, let's try a different strategy. We'll do a closed system and we'll charge people for the songs. Boom. It worked. So what happened and the way Steve Jobs escaped that Moses trap and he was in there, he was absolutely headed down that direction is number one, he led like a gardener rather than a Moses, managing the touch and the balance between those artists and soldiers, shepherding the ideas and the feedback back and forth between those two. And number two, he'd learned to be ambidextrous. He'd learned to watch his blind side, watch the blind spot. He had been a product, 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 product person. And now he expanded. Well, let's actually think about for our new product, some really different creative strategies. For this wild new product called an iPod, let's do this weird little strategy of closing the system and putting songs online, which nobody had done before. So that's kind of the uh, how you apply the power of border dwellers to thinking differently as a leader and of escaping this Moses trap, because you started this with the question of, do I think it's sort of inevitable that companies will follow down this path? No, I think companies that have gotten it right, Google was an example. They created a great product. They had a very new, interesting technology for search, but then they found a very different way to monetize it. So they have, one of the things that's helped them succeed is that they've been good at both product and strategy giving away their operating system Android for free didn't involve creating Android. It was a surprising strategic move that worked very well for them. No, I absolutely love these stories. It, it was funny. You were mentioning American Airlines and just their booking system and what they did. It reminds me of, of Rich Barton. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him and his framework of power to the people. So he started Expedia, uh, Zillow, and Glassdoor. And, and the same thing, he, he took all these backend systems and just made them open to the people. But it has it has me wondering along the lines of smaller companies, and I know you took a two-person company all the way up from startup to IPO. How does this apply to those really small early startups? So <clears throat> number one, I, I, one of the things I talked about is that you want to balance your artists and the soldiers and the creative, innovative urge with uh, focusing on time, on budget, on spec. And the reason that it's so difficult is that they're opposite activities. In one case, you're trying to take risk. In another case, you're trying to minimize risk. 
one case you're trying to do try 10 different things, nine of which should fail. You're trying to maximize risk because if you're not, if you're trying to create something new and you're not failing, you're doing a bad job because you're not taking enough risk. You are trying, if you aren't failing, the problem, because you have to typically go through, you have to go through those nine things that don't work to find that 10th thing that changes the world, whether it's a new technology, a new algorithm, a new business model, a new strategy. You have to try nine things, really push the boundary before you discover that 10th thing. Why? Because if there weren't nine failures in front of that 10th thing, somebody else would have been there already. So if you're not maximizing risk on the one side, on the one hand and on the one side with this group of artists, and I'll come back to what you asked about how you do this as a small company, and that's where I'm going with this. The point is you, you need to try those nine things. You need to fail and get comfortable with failing. And that's a very different mindset. If you're not doing that, your competitor who is doing that will discover that 10th thing before you. And then you'll see it too late when it's a bullet coming to your head to take out your business. So on the one hand, you want to maximize risk and fail a lot to get to that 10th thing that's fantastic. On the other hand, and this is the challenge, you need to minimize risk. If you have a sales guy knocking on a customer's door, opens the door, customer opens the door and, and you hand them a toaster and you say, here's your toaster, sir. And the guy says, toaster, I ordered a television. Okay, you're not going to have a business for very long. If you can't get your basic operations on time, on budget, on spec, consistently with quality to customers, you won't have a business. So doing that right means minimizing risk. You can't have nine out of 10 things fail. You can't knock on 10 customer doors and nine of them, you give them the wrong stuff. It's exactly the opposite. So your question was, how do, what about a small company? Well, that's a great question because in a large company, as we just talked about, you know, let's say Steve Jobs, when he came back to Apple, on the one hand, he had the Johnny Ives of the world working on wild, crazy stuff, uh, trying lots of different ideas and lots of different experiments and failing a lot until they come up with something that really works. On the other hand, he had Tim Cook, whose job was to minimize risks. And this is the tension. This is, I call it the beautiful baby problem. If you think of it as your artist's are working on something new. When an artist works on something new and they finally find that thing that they're really excited about, to them, it's like a beautiful baby full of potential. To the soldier, it's a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit and poop. And that's the tension. One side sees this as a beautiful baby. The other side sees this as a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit and poop. Beautiful baby, vomit and poop. And you want that tension. This is where people go wrong and say, oh, well, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. No, you want that tension. You want your artist excited about the potential of that beautiful baby. If they're not, what are they doing? They're not creating something really interesting. It's the wrong artist. You want them excited. You want that tension. They're both right. It is a beautiful baby and it is covered in vomit and poop. Both are right. You need both to succeed. You need that beautiful baby potential excitement and energy. And you need the soldiers there to say, well, that, that's great, but let's 
figure out where are the flaws, what's the poop, how do we clean it up, how do we mitigate the risk, how do we operationalize it. Just having the idea to use a sports analogy is getting the ball from your goal line to your five yard line. Okay, turning that idea into a product that you can deliver consistently is the soldiers working with the artist to get it from the five yard line, the 95 yards down the rest of the field. So you need both. Now, large company, you can create separate groups that are specialized in A and B and that's fine. But a small company, if you're two people, if you're five people, even if you're just one person like me, let's now I'm writing and advising, working with companies or, you know, small number of people on my team. How do you do that? When you can't, if you're a small company and you can't separate, you can't hire a Johnny Ives to do X and a, you know, Tim Cook to do Y. When you're a small company, you need to separate that role, those roles in time. That means if you're the leader or the manager, you need to work, guide your team, be mindful of which mode you are in at what time. For example, you say, listen, we're going to take two days this week and we are going to take off our operation on time, on budget, on spec hat, and we're going to put on our wild creative artist hat. And I want you guys to come up with the craziest, dumbest ideas that you thought may never work. And we're going to have this, we're going to put them all on the table. And instead of saying, why are they stupid? We're going to say, how might we make this work? Not only how might we make this work, but even more importantly, how might our competitors make this work and use this crazy idea, which we don't think is worth much, under what conditions or scenarios might a competitor actually weaponize this idea, turn it around and use it against us and take our business. So you take off your operation on time on budget on spec hat where you're de-risking everything and you focus on the stuff with the biggest risks and you say, how might they work? What might our competitors be doing that could come and kill us? And once you understand that, say, wait a minute, how about if we did that? How about if we did that to them? How about if we turned this weapon around and used it against them? How about if we came up with this crazy idea? How might we make that work? So you start with maybe a hundred ideas, you boil it down to 30 ideas. And at the end of the day, you have maybe three wacky, crazy ideas or loon shots that you want to pursue. And they may be both on the product side and on the strategy side. And at the end of that one or two day period, you say, okay, team, we are now going to take off the wild, crazy artist hat. And we're going to put back on our soldier hat. And we're going to march these three ideas down the field. We're going to de-risk them. We're going to mitigate them. We're going to use metrics. We're going to measure on time, on budget, on spec. So if you are leading or managing a small team, you have to be very good at taking on and taking off hats and being very clear with your people. Now we're gonna be in artist mode and we're gonna work on creative wild new ideas which are very high risk. And now we're gonna maximize risk. I want you all to suspend disbelief of what might or might not work and let's just explore and go into dreamland okay, it's the end of the day or the end of the two-day period, you know, the three-day period or the end of the retreat. And we're going to take that off and now we're going to minimize risk. That's how you do it on a small team. But the key there is to be mindful of the mode, to be really good at what hat you're wearing when. Because if you don't, you're going to completely confuse your team. 
Everybody maximize risk. No, everybody minimize risk. No, everybody maximize risk. No, everybody minimize risk. You're going to be a fluid. No, you're going to be a solid. You're going to be a fluid. No, you're going to be a solid. You just get mush. So when you're a small team, you don't, you can't afford to build one group doing this and one group doing that. But you can separate, what you can do is separate those roles in times. You have a lot of other advantages that it's easier to motivate your people when you're a smaller company, easier to engage people and connect with them with a the big mission when you're a small company. But the challenge is exactly what you just asked, which is how do you do this in a small company setting? And the answer is you separate those roles in time. Was that helpful? Oh, it's, you, you have no idea actually how helpful both personally and I'm sure for, for plenty of people listening. One thing I'd like to pull out of that though is thinking about the early teams. And I know you, you've discovered some untapped talent in the past. What are you looking for when you're trying to build out that team? Um, I would say three things. One, there's a certain level of raw intelligence and problem-solving horsepower. Right? You don't need to be a Nobel laureate, but you need to enjoy problems and have a reasonably good skill at thinking through problems and solving problems. And that, uh, you know, one thing I learned the hard way is you know, you, you might like a lot of other things about a person and really connect to them and they'd be very charming and charismatic. But if they are not really interested in solving problems, if they haven't spent a lot of time in solving problems, if they're not good at it, you can't make them better at it. It's, it takes too long. It's too hard. I don't believe people are genetically, there may be some genetic predisposition, but you could learn that. And I'd rather have people, people have learned that somewhere else. So number one, there's a certain raw intelligence and problem solving ability that you want to see, number one. Number two, you want to see curiosity. You want to see, do they get curious about stuff? What are some examples of where they've hit some roadblocks and used curiosity in the past to help identify new solutions? So that's, again, it, some things depend on, the role you're looking for. If you're looking to hire an accountant, you don't really need a lot of innovation and creativity. You need someone who's going to be a good accountant. So again, you, you need to be mindful of, are you hiring for an artist? Are you hiring for a soldier? What role you're hiring for? But let's say you're hiring uh, you know, for, for someone you're looking for working on products or strategy or business model, for example. Number one, there's sort of raw intelligence. Number two, there's curiosity. Uh, number three, there's, do I want to sit, the, the, the personal impact, personal relationship question. Would I want to sit on a plane next to this person for six hours? Actually, that's a different question in COVID time. Would I want to be on a Zoom call with this person <laughs> for an hour? Because so much of working together effectively depends on trust and depends on teamwork. And so if you don't have that, you have someone who, who just feels very shifty or feels untrustworthy or feels like maybe they have real integrity issues or ethical issues. It's just going to poison the whole organization. So you want a certain level of raw intelligence. One, you want to see that curiosity. You want number two, number three, you want that. Do I want to sit next to on a plane next to this person for a long time? 
you want to be very careful about that. You don't want to just hire people who talk good, who talk, talk good. That's not a good example. You don't want to, people who are just great talkers and charming um, because that's a very easy trap in interviews. So you want that raw intelligence, you want the curiosity, but you do want some ability to work well in a team. Uh, and then I would, um, I think you know those are certainly again. It depends on what role you're looking at, you're looking for. But those are sort of generic uh, problem-solving skills, curiosity, um, personal impact, and I guess it, a fourth thing is a level of energy and passion. If you, especially again, it depends on the role. If you're hiring an accountant, you may not need someone who's jumping through the roof. Um, but if you want somebody to lead product or lead business development or, or lead uh, customer relationships, you need somebody with energy and passion. So that's kind of a fourth thing. Incredibly helpful. Once again, I, I, I've mentioned this already, but your just ability to distill down to make things so clear and simple is incredibly helpful. So I wanted to thank you for that. I know we're going to wrap up here in a minute. You've got to get back to the, to the cave and the, and the projects you're currently working on. But I would just love to see if you have any recommendations um, with that multidisciplinary approach to learning with border dwellers. If you were only going to be selecting a handful of books to read or, or articles, are there certain ones you think would provide some good context for people trying to understand these borders a little better? Well, let's see. Uh, you know, one thing I could tell your audience, if, if you want more, you can uh, email me, uh, firstname at lastname.com, safiatbacall.com, and I'll send you for free uh, a PDF of the first chapter of uh, Loon Shots, which kind of captures a lot of the stuff we've just been talking about. Uh, I decided to make that free just, uh, you know, a few months ago because we, especially now fighting COVID and with, with what we need in the biomedical world, um, we need loon shots more than ever. And especially for businesses who are thinking about how do we come out of this crisis? How do we lead in crisis? How do we come out of this crisis stronger and faster than our competitors? What you need to do is balance the sort of operational efficiency stuff of lowering your costs and getting them under control with the new loon shots that you can develop during this time while your competitors are just trying to, you know, save their ships. If you can actually develop really impressive, creative new ideas at the same time as you are putting out fires, you can come roaring out the other end of this crisis. So, um, you know, one thing is just send me an email or if you go on my website, loonshots.com, and uh, there's a place you can enter your email to uh, get these sort of ideas emailed to you once or twice a month. Um, and then that will have a link. You put your email there, that will give you a link to getting this first chapter as well. Uh, it's a little, I actually haven't, I love books so much. There's so many. It's hard for me to think right off the top of my head. I learned a lot by there's actually so much you can learn from World War II on strategy and products and technology and managing innovation. Uh, one thing that I found uh, was a good starting point for me was just reading Vannevar Bush's memoirs. 
pieces of the action. He was the guy who got a two million person organization, the US military, to turn around and innovate astonishingly fast without dropping the ball on execution. And he wrote a, uh, you can get it on, it's out of print, but you can, I think, still get it on Amazon. Or actually, I think I put, if you send me a link, I think I might've actually put it online on my website somewhere, uh, just because I mentioned it before and it's difficult to find out because uh, it's out of print. I just put the PDF on my website. Um, but his personal story of how he went from an engineer to joining the largest organization, largest organization in the world and making them unbelievably innovative during a time of crisis, and then use that innovation to help turn the course of a world war. And it kind of makes whatever little problems we're facing with, facing with our 10 person, 50 person, 100 person, even 1000 person company seem pretty small by comparison. If he was able to do that with a 2 million person organization and turn the course of a world war, we can probably all do that. So if I had to pick one book, uh, and actually that's the, the story, part of that story is what I tell in that first chapter of Loon Shots, uh, which I can email or you can get if you go online. Um, if there was one book to read, I would read probably Vannevar Bush's uh, memoir, Pieces of the Action. I love it. Recommendations we've never gotten before. And I'll make sure we have that linked up in the show notes so they can receive the first chapter there. One final one here for you. If you could sit down for an evening of interviewing anyone dead or alive, but but not a family member or close friend, who would you choose? That's a good question. Um, well, we talked about Richard Feynman, but I, you know, I actually, if I were to go back in history, I would love to speak with Johannes Kepler. Is people don't realize they give so much credit to Isaac Newton for launching modern science, for really transforming our species from thinking about, oh, the world works based on gods and things inside nature, uh, things inside the heavens are being, you know, controlling what we see in nature. And they give credit to Newton for helping, you know, launch what's probably the most transformative single idea in the history of our species, which is that underlying these things that we see around us are what we now call laws of nature. And people give credit to Newton, but in fact, if you look back and you'd had to pick one person who really drove that idea, it would be Johannes Kepler. And that's because for 2000 years, people had said, well, the planets and the stars in the sky, they all move the way the gods tell us and they move in these circles. And he just looked and he said, it just doesn't work. That's just not what, even though he was a religious person and you know, of course those were different days, everybody was very religious. He said, what all these religious leaders and divine rulers have been telling us and the ancient Greeks that we worship have been telling us, it doesn't work. And I think there are these laws of nature and they're telling us the planets move in this very different way. And he wrote down those laws. I mean, it took him many years, but he really broke the bonds of this legacy of 2000 years of thinking. And in fact, it was to explain Kepler's observations that Newton came up with some of the basic principles of gravity with a few other people who helped him along the ways. So I'd love to talk to Kepler and under that, that would be just an incredible 
experience and going back in history because that was a turning point, maybe the biggest turning point in the history of our species. You mentioned incredible experiences, and I really feel like that every time uh, I'm fortunate enough to talk with you. And the word that I think is going to sum up this conversation was the word that summed up your previous year, and and that's around curiosity. Uh, Safi, I know I know you've got a lot you're working on right now that we weren't even able to tap into, so I think we're going to have to do a round three at some point. But <laughs> a, a, anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected with you, of course, we'll have the website linked up and a, a lot of the articles you write in addition to the book Loon Shots, which was one of my favorite books I've come across over the last decade. So we'll definitely have that linked up. But anywhere else you want the listeners staying connected with you? Uh, you know, no, they can email me directly, as I said, first name at last name. Like on my website, they can get the first chapter. And, you know, I I think what's been kind of interesting for me is with a, a small handful of people, I've started to develop kind of close one-on-one relationships like CEOs and people who are leading companies. And that's been very satisfying. So I'm um, exploring taking taking on a few more of those, you know, in balance with the research projects that I'm doing right now. So people email me or go on the website, they can see all the latest articles or stay in touch directly. Great. Well, once again, Safi Bacall, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.